Well, good morning, faith family. If you got your Bible, go to the book of Jonah one last time. This morning we finish our runaway series. Our buddy can finally stop running, right? Some, some have expressed to me like, we're really sad that he didn't ever get anywhere. You know, like nobody gave him an ice cream cone or something for all his running. But yeah, we're finishing our runaway series. I'm going to do something this morning I've never done before, and that is I'm going to preach an entire book of the Bible. We're going to go back through everything, in, well, not everything in Jonah, but I really felt uh, the Lord lead me to kind of summarize the takeaway of this book. We've looked at so many incredible things in God's Word here in the book of Jonah, and I just feel like before we leave it, let's make sure that we understand the main points, the main themes, and be challenged once again at this great truth. Uh, here in the book of Jonah. So let's look at Jonah chapter 1, beginning here at verse 1. If you're able to stand, please do so. Honor of reading God's Word. Don't be nervous. We're not reading the whole book. It's tempting. But let's just uh, remind ourselves how the story uh, begins. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid a fare, went down into it, and to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we um, ask that you would teach us once again the great truths found in um, this book. It is inspired by you, and we can never get enough of learning about you and your outrageous love. Take us deeper uh, in that this morning as uh, we learn from your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, please do what only you can do. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was supposed to be just a one-hour drive. It ended up taking over five hours. It was supposed to be just, you know, an uneventful detour in Los Angeles. It ended up being a tour of the freeway system of all of Southern California. (laughs) It is a situation described by Dave Haney in his book, Living Hope, uh, a situation that probably many of us in this room can relate to, and that of getting lost. He writes, quote, By the time we arrived in the general area of our location, it was dark. Every house was the mirror image of the one down the street. And some genius developer had cleverly named the streets Rosita, Cosita, Conchita, and Repita. (laughs) It was now 10 o'clock at night, and the lights of L.A. were a distant glow on the horizon. And being neither a resident nor a regular visitor of Southern California, I would have been wise to stop and A, get directions, B, buy a map, but I chose C, none of the above. I drove that night over 150 miles for five hours on streets I'd never seen, but I was never lost. (laughs) Spoken like a true male. Being lost is for wimps. It's imprinted on the American male psyche like a tattoo. Heroes never get lost. 
John Wayne was never lost. Columbus, he never asked for directions. He just pointed his boat and sailed into history. Being lost means admitting you need help. Admitting you need help is admitting that you can't do it yourself. Admitting that you can't do it yourself is admitting weakness, and weakness is for wimps. And then he says this. The problem isn't our reluctance to ask for directions. It's our reluctance to admit we're lost. And it's a lot easier to be lost than admit you are. Friends, this morning, all eyes, all ears right here, there is one final question you and I must answer from the book of Jonah, and it's this. What direction are you going? Where is your life headed? What path are you on? Relationally, where are you going? Financially, where are you going? Vocationally, where are you going? Most importantly of all, spiritually, friends, when it comes to your relationship with God, what direction are you headed? That's the question the book of Jonah demands that we ask ourselves. Because for nine weeks, we have looked at a man's life who on many occasions has been going in the wrong direction. He continually refuses to submit to God's directions because he thinks he can figure it out on his own. We have looked at a man whose journey ended up being a lot longer and a lot harder than it had to be. And why is that? Not just for Jonah, but also for us. It's because of this. It's a whole lot easier to get lost than admit we are. So what direction is your life headed? And there are four things that we walk away from this book with that help us Stay on the right course. That, that we come back to over and over again to make sure that at least spiritually we are moving in the right direction of the direction of God. And here's the first thing. Faith family, we've got to understand. This book pleads for us to understand the subtlety of sin. The subtlety of sin. You see, in the verses that we just read, you'll remember the word of the Lord comes to Jonah Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, in verse 2. Call out against it. And what does Jonah do in verse 3? He goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. In other words, sin in the book of Jonah is portrayed as running from God. It's really a, a very helpful imagery, isn't it? I think that's why we've so resonated with the, the book, because we can all relate to running from God. Sin is simply this. It is... Taking that thing that God has called you to do. Go to Nineveh, love your spouse, raise your kids, love your neighbor, serve your neighbor, uh, give financially, uh, love God with all your heart. It's looking at that thing God has called you to do and saying, no thanks. It doesn't get any more practical than that. It is God saying, go this direction, and it's us saying, I'm going that direction. It's the story of a runaway. But here's the shocking turn of the story. It shows us 
what a runaway is in a different way. You see, when you and I think about runaways, we tend to think of, sure, that's that person who totally messed their life up because of alcohol. It was sad. Yeah, I know, that was that teenager that got involved in drugs very on and it ruined their life. Yeah, I know, that was, uh, that's the guy who lost his faith in God and now he proclaims to be a, an atheist. Yep, that's that guy who grew up in church and now he's nowhere to be found. We tend to think of runaways as those people who are somehow involved in big sins, serious rebellion. That's a runaway. Isn't that how we tend to think? So what's the shock of the book of Jonah? Here it is. The runaway isn't Nineveh, it's Jonah. The runaway in the story isn't that wicked people of Nineveh, though that's true. The real runaway is a religious prophet. Meaning this, sin is a lot more subtle than you think. Let, let, me, let me show you, because... Some of us would think this way, like, how can that be a runaway? I don't understand. How, how can Jonah be a runaway? Let me show you the story of Jonah in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 18, flip over in your app, follow along on the screen, whatever you want there. Look at Luke 18 and a story that Jesus tells. It is the story of Jonah. Jesus says that two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, so a religious leader, like Jonah. The other is a tax collector, that is a, a pagan outsider, like Nineveh. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, whew, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I mean, after all, look at me. I'm kind of a big deal. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I'm a good guy, right? And then look at the tax collector, verse 13. He's standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In other words, here's what you have. You have Jonah. You have Nineveh. You have a Pharisee. You have a tax collector. You have a good guy who loves his wife and he's good to his kids and he has a respectable job and he's loved in the community and he's nice to people and he's, he treats kittens well. <laughs> and then you have a bad guy. He's a cheat. He's a thief. He's hated in the community. He's an outcast. Um, you'd never see him in church. And even when he does show up, poor guy doesn't even know how to act. He just stands in the back hitting on himself. What's wrong with this guy? You have a good guy, and you have a bad guy. You have Jonah, the good guy, and you have Nineveh, the wicked people. And then here's where the shock of the story comes. Right here, fate family, what makes you good or what makes you bad isn't how you approach life. It's how you approach God. Notice why Jesus tells the story in verse 9. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, the Pharisee comes to God based on his morality. The tax collector comes to God based on mercy. The Jonah of the story comes to God thinking that he can get approval on his own. 
The Ninevite comes to God realizing he can't do anything on his own. He needs God. And then, oh, how I wish I would have been in the room when Jesus said this verse. I mean, it would have been amazing to see the expression on their face. Verse 14. And I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Man, we don't get this. We're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. But those who would have heard this story would have said, that's impossible. The good guy is the bad guy, and the bad guy is the good guy, and that's the kingdom of God. Because man-made goodness is anti-gospel. Religious prophets are just as much of runaways as wicked Ninevites. That's the shocker of the story of Jonah. And if you're an ancient Near Eastern Jew reading that story, you're saying there's no way the prophet's the bad guy. Sin is more subtle than you think. It means this, faith family. You can run from God with your feet in reckless living, and you can run from God with your heart through religious living. Because anything your heart runs to other than Jesus means you're Jonah. When your heart is running to anything else other than Jesus as the ultimate love and affection of your heart, that's a runaway. Which means this, if we're going to stay on the right direction, if we're not going to get spiritually lost out there, we must always be aware of where our heart wants to lead us, namely away from Jesus. You see? The subtlety of sin. But here's the other thing we learn. It's the reality of grace. I mean, how many times over and over again have we seen the grace of God in this book? In chapter 1, verse 4, God sends this great wind, this mighty storm that threatens to break up the ship. Uh, in chapter 2, you'll remember I got real excited several weeks ago on, Yet, but, nevertheless, Jonah cries out for help and says, Yet, I will look again to your holy temple, verse 4. Then in verse 9 of chapter 2, With a voice of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you remember verse 1 of chapter 3? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Friends, the only thing bigger than Jonah's sin is the grace of God. The only thing bigger than your sin is the grace of God in your life. And here's what this book teaches us to do. Wake up to see the ever-present reality of God's grace daily. It's everywhere. If the only time you stand amazed at the grace of God is when you come to church and hear a sermon on it, then you're asleep during the week. It's coming at you in all kinds of directions. Think, for instance, Jonah's life. It comes with an invitation. That is, Jonah does not deserve to be on mission with God, but God calls Jonah in. Isn't that awesome? God comes to Jonah and he comes in a storm. Why? I love you so much, I'll break you to save you. 
When you're running from me and you're my child, I love you so much, I'll mess your life up to get you to come home. And then God's grace comes again in a fish. He's in danger. He's facing death. And a fish swallows him up to rescue him out of his danger. Our God comes to us in our moment of need. Then in chapter 3, the grace of God comes again with a second chance that failure doesn't disqualify you from God using you. Failure is an event, not your identity if you're in Jesus. He comes to Jonah a second time. And then in chapter 4, he comes with a question. Do you do well to be angry? In other words, God is patient with Jonah when Jonah is angry with God. It's everywhere. Open your eyes to see the manifestations of God's grace all throughout your day. It comes in painful times and it comes in the most joyful of times. But here's the point, faith family. No matter where you are, it's there. You're running from God, it's there. You're trapped and feel there's no way out, it's there. You've made a total mess of your life, it's there. You're right smack dab in the middle of the biggest storm you've ever faced, it's right there. You're never going to get beyond it. You're never going to grow out of it. The, the grace of God is an ever-present reality. And you're going to get off course. You're going to start going the wrong direction when all of a sudden you start becoming numb to grace. Think of it this way. There's been a lot of graduation parties going on. When it comes to the university of grace, that is a school of which you will never graduate. When it comes to the university of grace, that is a school of which you and I will never graduate from. You say, oh, pastor is wrong first time today. I caught him. No, 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 pastor, when we get to heaven, God's going to give us our diploma that we are finally finished with grace. What? Read the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says this, oh, But God, being rich in mercy, that's the understatement of the year, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what you're going to be glorifying and, and displaying 10 billion, gazillion, billion, trillion, billion years into heaven? The grace of God. For the ages to come... The song will forever be the grace of God to us in Christ Jesus. And he will receive all the glory. So don't think in this life or the next you will ever graduate from the ever-present reality of God's grace. So open your eyes to it now. Grow in it. All you're doing is preparing yourself for heaven. 
Open your eyes to see the present reality of grace in your life. Grow in grace. And you might say, you say that a lot, Pastor, but what would that mean? Like, if I were growing in grace, if I were aware of grace in my life, how, how would I know that? How, how, is there something I could look to, like some type of practical test to know whether or not I'm growing in grace? I'm glad you asked that because I'm going to give you three. Practical ways that you know, like Joni, you're growing in grace. Here's the first is that as you're noticing the present reality of grace in your life, you're going to begin to see that your view of yourself changes. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Your view of you changes. Here's what it does. Grace produces in us a humble confidence. A humble confidence. You're going to grow in humility if you understand grace, and here's why. Because the more you understand grace, the more you're going to understand how absolutely undeserving you are of it. I'm going to get to preaching here. Listen, some of you are old-er. <laughs> old-er, right? And say old. I said older. If you're not more amazed at grace than you were when you were 20, something's wrong spiritually. When you grow in Jesus, you don't become more eh about grace. You become like, whoa, about grace. I'm so unbelievably undeserving of God's acceptance. That's humility. How are you going to boast in you over that? I'm pretty awesome. No, you're not. I'm a snowflake. No! You're undeserving of the grace of God. And here's what you would say. You would say, yeah, but if I really believe that, I would sink into despair. And that's where the confidence comes in. You have humble confidence. Why? Because you know this. Even though that acceptance is undeserving, you are nonetheless still accepted by God. Newsflash. He really loves you. Like, we're not making that up. He fully accepts you in Jesus Christ. This is all. So you don't ever go into despair. He loves you. And you don't ever get prideful because you don't even deserve the love. And so you live in a humble confidence, knowing that you're not so bad, that grace can't reach you, and you're not so good that you don't need it anymore. And here's what it does. For the first time in your life, you can be honest about yourself. You can be honest. You can be free in your own skin because of Jesus. Here's what I mean. So you're the most attractive person in the South Metro. Good for you. Here's a button. Or, or you're as ugly as a monkey's armpit. Whatever. You, um, you're really smart. You are all A's. Woohoo! You're not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? You get the best parenting award. You feel like as a parent you're a total loser. What Grace says is that none of those things make you any more or any less acceptable in the eyes of God. So you're free. You're free to live with a humble confidence 
when you look in the mirror because you don't deserve the grace you got but you're accepted really really accepted anyway that's when you know you're growing in grace here's the second thing and by the way that's because religious prophets and wicked pagans are equal at the foot of the cross amen here's the second thing is you're gonna notice a difference in your response to God you remember in Jonah chapter 1 when uh, they come to Jonah like I have to come to you some weeks and say wake up sleeper no I'm just kidding right it's like wake up you're asleep cry out to God and what does Jonah do nothing but do you notice that as he grows in grace that throughout the book he starts coming to God a lot more frequently in things like this so just quickly like in chapter 2 verse 1 he calls out for help in chapter 2 verse 4 he confesses his sin in uh, chapter 2 verse 9 he gives thanksgiving and praise in uh, chapter 4 verse 1 he comes to God with all these questions of how could you do this here's the point I hope this will be simple as you grow in grace what you're going to discover is that you come to God a lot more frequently and with a lot more variety why because you know you're accepted so you can come to him in any season of life it looks like this hey God I'm gonna shock you today but I actually don't have anything to ask of you I just want to give thanks and praise to who you are and then there's gonna be days you're gonna say okay God I need help I'm in a situation that looks pretty dangerous like a fish swallowed me help and then you're gonna come and you're gonna say I've been running from you my heart's been running after other things God I want to confess my sin and then you're gonna say God here I am again life doesn't seem to be going fair right now and I'm kind of angry can I just be really honest with you about my anger do you see grace frees you to have a complete relationship with God you don't have to hide you don't have to be fake and you begin to notice that your conversation with God is happening a lot more often here's the third thing is you're gonna notice your relationships with other people begin to change your relationship with other people begin to change uh, I take this from last week's text in Jonah 4 do you remember when God gave him the plant and then he appointed the awesome worm right the divine worm of God destroys the plant and the the sun's beating down on his head and he gets angry and you know do you do well to be angry for the plant what was God teaching Jonah it was this do you remember it was just last week surely you remember it's this Jonah I didn't give you grace for you to keep it to yourself what's wrong with you that I would forgive you everything and you won't forgive them that thing why is it that I pour out outrageous love on you but you love so normally so ordinary that's the point you begin to notice as you understand the grace of God and you are aware of its reality in your life your relationships with other people change and at least two things happen one is you identify your Ninevite have you done that yet that person that they just get under your skin they drive you crazy it's your enemy and the gospel comes in and says guess what while we were enemies of God he died for us 
and we begin to love our enemy and love our Ninevite. The relationship with other people changes. Here's the other thing you do. You identify your plant. That preference you have, that thing that makes your life so comfortable, but it blocks you from loving people the way God has loved you. And you begin to say, I think I'll crucify my plant so that I can image my crucified Savior and his love for other people. As you grow in the reality of grace, your view of yourself, your response to God, and your relationship with other people begin to change. Here's the third thing that keeps us on course that we learn from the book of Jonah, and it's this, is that we recognize the urgency of the mission. The urgency of the mission. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Faith family right here. We cannot walk away from the book of Jonah without seeing the missional call of God on our life. You and I were not put here for ourselves. God has called us to be a part of His mission. That's why we have air in our lungs. He has called us to live with a purpose, live with a focus, live with an intentionality of being on mission with Him. Our God is a missionary God. From cover to cover in the Word of God, we see God is a missionary God. He calls Abraham to be the father of many nations. He brings in Ruth the Moabite and and from Jericho, Rahab. He he calls uh, to be disciples of all nations. Uh, he, He saves Ninevites. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we're to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. You have an Ethiopian eunuch. You have Jews and Gentiles that are brought into one body. You have a Samaritan woman. You have in Revelation every tribe and nation gathered at the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. What am I saying? Our God is a missionary God. Join Him in that mission. If you are his, his mission is yours. And we are to wake up every day with those kind of eyes when we go to work and we love our children and we try to raise them in the Lord and we live next to our neighbors. I have put you here to be on mission for me. Arise and go to Nineveh. And we talked about the fact that for Jonah to go to Nineveh was going to come at great cost. They don't tend to treat people nice in Nineveh. They cut their lips off or worse. And I thought about that because just a couple of weeks ago, I watched Selma. Um, where it talks, where it, the movie displays the civil rights movement from Selma to Montgomery in the march. And I, I remember watching that and just thinking, first of all, this makes me sick. It, the injustice, the inhumanity, the violence literally made me want to throw up. And I sat there watching the movie and I thought, why did they not quit? After the 
the, the beating on the bridge and all the... Why didn't they just give up and just say, you know, this, this... Why did Martin Luther King Jr. continue to press on, even to the cost of his own life? And then it hit me. I went back and I listened to his speech in Montgomery, and I realized something. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't motivated by racial equality. He was actually motivated by something bigger than that. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed earth will rise again. How long, not long, because no lie can live forever. How long, not long, because you shall reap what you sow. How long, not long, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. kept Martin Luther King Jr. going wasn't racial equality. It was that God's truth must march on. That we are all created in the image of God. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in His sight. This isn't about relationships. This is about God. And His mission must go forward. In the midst of violence, in the midst of persecution, he endured. Rise and go to Nineveh, that place where they cut off lips. Rise and go to America, where they'll think you're narrow-minded. Rise and go to your workplace. Rise and go to your family. Rise and go to the cities, because his truth must march on. That is the mission of God that he has called us to. And we must never give up. We must never retreat. And as long as I have any say about it, this church, Berean, will be ever focused about the mission that God has called us to, to see lives transformed by the power of the gospel. So how does your life intersect 
with the mission of God? That's the question you have to ask yourself. From raising your children to going to work to serving in a ministry, you must see your life as on mission. Or think of it this way. If God's rhythm of his heartbeat is the redemptive plan, then what is the rhythm of ours? Does our heart beat the way God's heartbeat does, namely for mission? And here's the last thing as we leave the book. And it's the most important. We also see the necessity of Jesus. What? He's not even mentioned. I don't see Jesus anywhere in this book. Look at verse 17, the last phrase, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That ought to ring a bell to you, right? Do you remember how every week I've tried to show you how Jonah leaves us short? that he doesn't take us far enough, that we're left with that, is this how a prophet acts? In fact, we said last week, the, the, the book ends like this, and also much cattle. <laughs> Remember? And we're like, that's a terrible ending. Because it leaves you with this question, well, then is there a prophet of God who can fulfill the mission of God? Or, if not Jonah... In fact, every Old Testament story ends that way. Adam isn't what Adam's supposed to be. Uh, Moses isn't what Moses is supposed to be. David doesn't do all that David's supposed to do. And the whole Old Testament keeps screaming, Would somebody come? And in the New Testament, he does. His name is Jesus, God in the flesh. And you see in his life the fulfillment of Jonah, don't you? Like Jonah, he's asleep on a boat in a storm. What's the difference? Jonah sleeps, Jesus saves. Like Jonah, he's in a grave. What's the difference? Jonah is there because of his disobedience. Jesus is there because of his obedience. Like Jonah, he's resurrected on the third day. Why? Jonah, he needs a second chance. Jesus is the only one who can offer you a second chance. Like Jonah, Jesus is taken outside the city. The difference, Jonah wants to be isolated from people. Jesus wants to reconcile people to God. Here's the point, friends. The story of Jonah is incomplete without Jesus. And so is yours. James Merritt, in his book, will close with this, tells a story of a Chicago doctor. His book, God, I Have a Question, tells a story of a Chicago doctor named Dr. Leo Winters. He was a very specialized doctor. He received a call about 1 a.m. In the, in the morning, and there was a child that had been brought into the emergency room that was about to die, and he was the only doctor with the expertise that could save the child. He gets hurried, he gets dressed as hurried as he can. He, he gets to the host, tries to get to the hospital as fast as he can, going through a rough part of town because that was the fastest way to get there. He is stopped at a stoplight, and a man with gray hair, a flannel shirt, opens the car door, grabs Dr. Winters, pulls him out of the car, jumps in the car, and takes off while Dr. Winters is screaming, trying to explain the situation. 
By the time he can get contact and find another ride to the hospital, a nurse meets him there and says, you're 30 minutes too late. The child has already died. The father is in the chapel, very upset why you didn't get here on time. He wants to speak with you. Dr. Winters kind of gathered all the courage that he could, knowing that this was going to be a difficult conversation, and he walks into the chapel only to discover the dad with gray hair and a flannel shirt. The dad had rejected the only one who could save. The story of Jonah is incomplete without Jesus, and so is your story. He is the only one who can save you. And dear friend, there is a day when you are going to stand before God. The Bible says it is appointed for man to die and after that to face the judgment. And on that day, hear me, hear me, if the main character of your story isn't Jesus Christ, your story will be incomplete as well. And you will find on that day that you spent your whole life running in the wrong direction. And I understand that it is much easier to get lost than to admit that you are. But I plead with you. I plead with you. Join the testimony of a prophet named Jonah. Join the testimony of a wicked city called Nineveh. Join the testimony this morning of every single runaway who's ever come home. The testimony of, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. It doesn't get any more practical than that, God, that we must see that the love of our life, the affection of our heart, the direction of our life is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Help us understand the subtlety of sin, the ever-present reality of grace so that we grow in it. Give us an urgency of mission and purpose every day in the things that you've called us to. And through it all, we're running like the Apostle Paul to say, I want to know him more and more. I'm forgetting what lies behind, and I'm running in the right direction, the direction of Jesus. God, I pray that's true for all of us here this morning. Would you come and convict us? Turn us around if you need to, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.